So where are we in the book of Ephesians? We're in chapter five. We're in the second half of the book. Chapters one through three are the doctrinal part of the book of Ephesians. It's all the indicatives of the book of Ephesians. This is what God has done for you, chapters one through three. And now chapters four through six, this is how you should then respond. This is how you walk in the Christian life. So we're in the middle of that in chapter five. This is how a Christian should walk in their daily life before the Lord, having been redeemed by grace through faith alone, not of their own merit. So we'll be looking at three things in the verses today, verses 11 through 14. We'll be looking at how Christians are to be shunning darkness. Second, how they are to be shining light. And thirdly, how they are to call the world to wake up. Shunning darkness, shining light, wake up. So with that being said, I want to think of a a situation that might be arising more and more as our culture degenerates, something that you may have actually already experienced. Imagine you're talking with a friend. You're sitting on the couch, and he tells you, hey, I'd really like you to come to my wedding. Um, That would mean the world to me. Would you you attend my wedding? I really want you to be a guest there. And you say, oh, wonderful. Who's the bride-to-be? What's her name? I didn't know you were engaged. What's she like? He says, oh, no, no, no. It's not a she. I'm marrying Fred. I'd like you to come to, my, to this wedding, to Fred. Now, there are many in the Christian evangelical world who would tell you that there is a difficult answer to this question of whether or not you should attend such a wedding, that this is a nuanced issue, that there's a lot of gray, that this is, in fact, an area of Christian liberty. Well, one of my tasks this morning is going to be to show you that this is not an area of Christian liberty. This is actually an area where God's word speaks very clearly to, and we should not compromise in this area. Perhaps another example is you're at a work event, and the work event is changing locations, and now all of a sudden you're going to a place that you know immoral things are going to be happening in that location. Or you're at school, and a crude joke is told, and you're tempted to laugh. Or you're at a college campus, or at a work training, and there's a DEI compliance that you need to go through, and you're being told to use inclusive language. One of the questions I want to tackle this morning through this text is whether or not Christians should just go along to get along. Is that the call of the Christian life? So let's dive in. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Our passage begins with a negative imperative. Do not do this. Do not do a certain thing. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. There are do's and don'ts in scripture, and there are do's and don'ts after the gospel has been presented. This is not legalism. This is what's called the third use of the law. The first use of the law is to convict us of our sin and to show us our need for Christ. The second use of the law is for the civil government to punish evildoers. And the third use is to show us now that we have been redeemed, What does it look like to live the Christian life? What does God want me to do? And so this is one of those commands. Don't do a certain thing as a believer. That's not who we are. That's not the family way. That's not the way to walk as children of the light, as Paul puts it earlier in the the chapter. So what's this command? He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This word, take no part, is a single word in the Greek. It means have no fellowship It means do not participate, do not share in, do not partake of, do not have communion with. One of the lexicons actually says that it means do not have any sort of connection one may have with someone or something. So it's a very strong term. Do not partake, do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. Maybe just an easy way of capturing it is don't do the unfruitful work of darkness and don't approve of the unfruitful work of darkness. Don't do it or approve or even give the impression that you approve. You should have nothing to do with it. So Paul, writing to the Ephesians, who are in the midst of a pagan culture, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as ours, is calling the Christians to stand out. He's calling them to shine in the midst of a dark culture. Now, it's important to notice what Paul is saying here and what he's not saying. He's not saying do not have any connection or do not talk at all to unbelievers or those who live and practice the works of darkness. What he's saying is take no part in the works themselves. 
So he's not saying don't talk to people who are non-Christians. He's not saying don't talk to people who are participating in the unfruitful works of darkness. He's saying don't take part in them. He actually repeats this command from earlier in verse 7. Verse 7 says, therefore, do not become partners with them. So why does Paul repeat this command? It's because it's important. It's because it's something that Christians are tempted to do. We're tempted to compromise. We're tempted to water down the word of God. We're tempted to participate in in the unfruitful works of darkness. And once we've participated, we're then tempted to justify ourselves and to say that we were doing it out of love or out of concern when we actually have never shared the gospel with this person at all. That this is in fact the case that this is what Paul is calling us to is confirmed by verses in 1 Corinthians that Andy preached on a while back. 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we need to have these categories in our mind. If this person claims to be a Christian, and yet they're participating in the unfruitful works of darkness, Paul says you're to have nothing to do with that person. You're not even to sit down to dinner with them. That's how radically he wants us to purge the evil person who claims to be a believer. Now, the person who doesn't claim to be a believer, Paul says, if if you were to do that, you couldn't even walk outside on the street, much less in Ephesus than in New York City. You couldn't even take the subway. So he's not saying that. He's saying for the the non-believer, you're not to participate in their works. He's not saying that you cannot speak to them because how would you share the gospel with them otherwise? So if somebody claims to be a Christian, and they're participating in the unfruitful works of darkness, he says, don't even eat with such a one. If they don't claim to be a Christian, then you can have contact with them, but not with their works. Now, often in conversations like this, and in talks that bring up what I mentioned at the beginning, whether or not you should attend a homosexual marriage, people often bring up that, well, wasn't Jesus the friend of sinners? Didn't he sit down with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners? Yes, he did. But that objection really fundamentally misses the point and fails to think in categories. If you've been listening so far, you'd already be able to answer that question. You'd know, well, of course, we're allowed to talk with people who are engaged in sinful lifestyles, who are engaging in sinful acts, but we should not participate in what they're doing. When Jesus sat down with a tax collector for dinner or a prostitute, was he participating in the tax collector's fraud? Was he participating in the prostitute's immorality? May it never be. Obviously not but he spoke grace and redemption and he called them to sin no more. He was exposing darkness. He was not joining in it. He was actually doing exactly what this passage commands. Mark 2, 15 through 17 brings this out perfectly. And as Jesus reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who were following him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is at dinner. The Pharisees are asking him this question. And at dinner, he's saying, these are sick and sinful people. So he's obviously not approving of what they're doing. He just called them sinful and sick, but he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to newness of life. And that's what exactly what Paul is doing in this passage. So what are these unfruitful works of darkness that Paul mentions? Well, fundamentally, it's breaking God's moral law. It's anything contrary to the Christian status as a child of the light. If you look earlier in this chapter, we're told that the fruit of the light is whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is good. So what are the unfruitful works of darkness? Well, it's the opposite of that. It's whatever is wrong, whatever is false, whatever is evil. Paul actually gives us a list earlier on in this chapter of what such things might be. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. So we're to take no part, we're to have no fellowship, we're to not even associate with those things. So back to the questions that I raised at the beginning of the sermon. Should I attend a gay wedding? 
Should I laugh at a crude joke? Should I use inclusive language in a DEI training? Well, let's put it through the grid that we just established. Are these unfruitful works of darkness? The answer is yes. Okay, that being said, what should I do with unfruitful works of darkness as a Christian? Paul says right here, take no part in them. Would attending, laughing, or using the language be taking part? Would it be having any connection with those things? Yes. So what's the answer? No, you should not take part in such things. This is the reasoning that, we should, be going, that should be going on in our head as a Christian, as we read God's law and we interact with the sins of our culture. This is to have the mind of Christ. This is to think in categories, in Christian categories, with a Christian worldview. Why does Paul call these unfruitful works of darkness? Why, why not just works of darkness? Why does he add the word unfruitful? Well, it's, it's, not, it's, it's because these are not just works that are not good, but they're works that are actively evil. They actively harm. God in the Bible is described as the God of life, and living against his law is to love death. This is told in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 8.36, all those who hate me, says divine wisdom, love death. They're unfruitful because they don't work in the long run. They are unproductive. They lead to destruction. But they're also life-sapping in the short run. If you take a look at the most prevalent sins in our culture today, whether it be abortion, homosexuality, LGBTQ, transition surgeries, pornography, masturbation, what do they all have in common? They are by definition unfruitful. They do not produce life. They are incapable of producing life. And we live, we have a God who is the God of life. And so they're contrary to him. They don't produce life. In fact, the scriptures tell us that they produce death. Romans 6, 21, Paul says again, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? See, he uses the word fruit again. For the end of those things, the end, the outcome of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and eternal life. There's two kinds of fruit, the fruit that leads to death and the fruit that leads to life. And then verse 23, a verse that we're probably familiar with, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And so if you're here this morning and you're living a life amidst the unfruitful works of darkness, there's a warning that Paul gives, and you should be warned. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, because of the unfruitful works of darkness, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What Paul is saying here is very explicit. Death and hell forever is what you can expect by continuing in those unfruitful works of darkness. But as the passage in Romans 6 says, there's a free gift. There's a free gift of eternal life. It's free, you don't earn it, you don't merit it, you're not good enough for it, you don't clean up your act to get it. It's free, you receive it. You believe that Jesus died for your sins and you receive the forgiveness of sins. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the simplicity of the gospel that a child could understand it. Whereas our sins merited death, that was our wage, that was the fruit of our life. Jesus took our death and gave us his life. That's the good news. Why are these unfruitful works of darkness? Why are they not just unfruitful works? Why does he add the word darkness Well, it's because the scriptures claim that if you are not in Christ, if you are not part of the body of Christ, if you are not a Christian, you are part of the kingdom of darkness, that you are actually doing the deeds of the devil. The Bible says that you are a slave to the devil and actually you are a child of the devil. You have the devil for your father. Now, if that scares you, and it should, and you don't want that to be the case, The only way you can get out of the fatherhood of the devil is to be under the fatherhood of God. And if you want to change families, the only way you can do that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only natural son of God. We are all sons and daughters of God by adoption. The only way to enter into the family of God is to be adopted into the family of God through his son. So if you want to change the family that you're a part of, and if your father is the devil, I would recommend you do, The only way to do that is through Christ. Verse 12, what is is the reason why we should not take part in the unfruitful works of darkness? 
He gives the reason in verse 12, for, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. He's actually repeating something that he said in verse three, where he says that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. He's saying that to speak such things, to even say these sins is shameful in a sense, to go into detail. Paul's doing what he does here in many other passages in his epistles. He's giving an argument from the lesser to the greater. If he's saying, if it's shameful to even talk about them, how much more is it shameful to do them or to take part in them? So it's shameful to talk about them. You, you shouldn't be doing them. As a Christian, we should not have these words on our lips, much less as part of our life. We live today in the midst of a culture that is for the most part, lost its sense of shame. Many Christians, too, have lost their sense of shame. It used to be the case that 50, 60, or 70 years ago, at the mention of divorce or adultery or fornication or a child being born out of wedlock, that that would elicit a sense of shame, that people would blush at the mention of such things. And many would take it as an advance in our culture that that is no longer the case, that there is no longer a sense of shame surrounding such sins. But the Bible claims that we should actually be ashamed, not only of our sin, but also of the sin around us. We should be embarrassed. Jeremiah 6.13 says the following, for from the least of them, this is an indictment against the nation of Israel, for from the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed? When they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So the question this morning is, do we know how to blush? Do you know how to blush? Have we even, as Christians, given in and been desensitized that we no longer have a proper sense of shame? Now, if you know your good Reformed theology, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, didn't Jesus take our sin and our shame away on the cross? Yes, he did. He most certainly did. But I would argue that there actually is a proper place for shame in the Christian life, a shame that leads to repentance. I think Thomas Watson in his book, The Doctrine of, the, this, uh, the Doctrine of Repentance, makes this point particularly clearly. So I'm going to read a passage from him that's rather lengthy, but, by, but I'd encourage you to pay attention because I think it's, it's particularly important. He writes, quote, the fourth ingredient in repentance is, is shame. Quote, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, Ezekiel 43.10. Blushing is the color of virtue. When the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the fade, face red with blushing. I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face, Ezra 9.6. The repenting prodigal was so ashamed of his excess that he thought himself not worthy to be called the son anymore. Repentance causes a holy bashfulness. If Christ's blood was not at the sinner's heart, there would not be so much blood in the sinner's face. Many have sinned away shame. Zephaniah 3.5, quote, the unjust knows no shame. It is a great shame not to be ashamed. When men have hearts of stone and foreheads of brass, it is a sign that the devil has taken full possession of them. There is no creature capable of shame but man. The brute beasts are capable of fear and pain, but not of shame. You cannot make a beast blush. Those who cannot blush for sin too much resemble the beasts. There are some so far from this holy blushing that they are proud of their sin. Be assured, the more we are ashamed of sin now, the less we will be ashamed at Christ's coming. If the sins of the godly are mentioned at the day of judgment, it will not be to shame them, but to magnify the riches of God's grace in pardoning them. Indeed, the wicked will be ashamed at the last day. They will sneak around and hang down their heads, but the saints will be without spot then and without shame. Therefore, they are bid to lift up their heads. So non-believers, end quote, non-believers with their shame, they're either not ashamed and they are proud of their sin or they are ashamed, but they flee from God. They run from him like Adam and Eve in the garden. These are merely the pangs of conscience. It's not a shame that leads to repentance. Now for a believer, and there's a proper place for shame in the believer's life, the believer in fact is more ashamed than the non-believer. His shame is much more intense than the non-believer. Why? Well, 
I've sinned against my best friend. I know better. I've sinned against my Savior. I, I was the one that nailed him to the cross. I was the one that was mocking him, that was spitting at him. I'm ashamed of what I've done to my friend. But that's true. But at the same time, we come boldly to the throne of grace and we're confident that God will lift our drooping head. We have our head down in shame, but for a moment, and God, as it were, lifts up our head. You notice those verses in the Old Testament that say, God, make your countenance to shine upon us. What is he saying? He's saying, God, lift up our heads. We're ashamed. We're in sorrow. We're in sin. We're in death. Lift up our heads. Look on us. And what does he do? He looks on us with eyes of love and tenderness. And he says, you are mine. You are loved. And our heart is overwhelmed. And all that we can say is, you are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. That is what shame leads to in the Christian. It leads to the eyes of God looking on us with compassion and love. A godly shame produces repentance. The shame of a Christian over his sin worked in the heart by the Holy Spirit is only the precursor to the loving embrace of his heavenly father. Let me say that again. The shame of a Christian over his sin worked in the heart by the Holy Spirit is only the precursor to the loving embrace of his heavenly father. So does shame have a place in the Christian's life? Yes, it most certainly does. Paul continues, he says, it is shameful to speak even of the things that they do in secret. Why does he mention that they are in secret? Well, it's because sin likes to hide. It's what we did in the garden, and we do it again today. But the Bible proclaims that God knows, that God knows what we do in secret, that God sees and that we cannot escape. God knows what you've done. God, God knows what you've thought in secret in the late hours of the night when you thought that nobody was watching, when you thought that darkness was your friend. There is nothing that is hidden from him, not your actions, not your thoughts, not your browser history. It would be bad enough if all of our thoughts were projected onto a billboard in Times Square, probably used this illustration before, but that would be bad enough. You probably wouldn't want to live in New York City. People would recognize your face if the thoughts of the past 24 hours were projected up there. How much more at the last day when all of creation will be gathered, angels and demons, every human being who has ever lived, and God Almighty, and your whole life displayed for all to see. You would do well to settle your accounts with God today, to repent and believe in Jesus today and to see all of those secret sins paid for by the blood of Jesus. To see those secret sins on the last day not be a testament to your death, but a testament to God's grace and his glory in saving you. It would be much better that that would be the case than for you to stand naked before the inflexible justice of Almighty God. He knows and he remembers. And the only way to have our sins forgotten is, is, is if they are cast into the shoreless sea of Christ's blood. This is exactly what God promises in the new covenant. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that good news? That when I can't forget my sin, God doesn't remember it. When I can't forget my sins, God doesn't remember them. They're cast away as far as the east is from the west when my conscience accuses me, there is someone who is greater than my conscience. This forgiveness is the greatest need of the human heart, that we can be fully known and fully forgiven by a God who has seen everything that we've ever done in secret and in the light. God knows it all, and for Jesus' sake, he forgives every single sin of anybody who repents and trusts in Christ. Let's move on. Point two, that was shunning darkness, now onto shining light. You may have noticed I didn't really go into depth on the part of the verse in verse 11 that says, expose them. That's what we're going to do now. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Then verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So as Christians, the command in this passage is to be exposing the unfruitful works of darkness by the light. What is the light? Well, 
It's probably either God, Christ, or the word of God. And probably all three are in view for Paul with an emphasis on Christ because in verse 14, we have the verse that says, Christ will shine on you. What shines? Light shines. So we are to shine the light of Christ. There are other passages in scripture that bring this point out. 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of, li- light of life. So unless you thought it was enough to just not take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, if you thought that was enough as a Christian, Paul actually ups the ante. He says, it's not just you should have no fellowship with them. You should be actively exposing them, actively exposing them by the light. So I, I want to propose that there are two ways that Christians should be exposing the unfruitful works of darkness and one source of light by which we expose two ways and one source. The first way is with our words. We expose the unfruitful works of darkness with our words. The word expose here means to reprove, to rebuke. And it actually even has the legal connotation of showing somebody's guilt. It's the word that's used in 2 Timothy 4.2, where Paul's outlining the duties of the preacher. He's saying you should reprove, rebuke with all patience in teaching. So it necessarily involves words. In 2015, you may have heard of this story. David Delayden was a undercover journalist um, who went to Planned Parenthoods across the United States, and he discovered that baby parts were being sold at abortion clinics and that they were profiteering off the sale of fetal organs. When he discovered this, what did he do? He wrote a, an article where he exposed it, and he brought these people to court. And he shut down multiple pharmaceutical companies collaborating with Planned Parenthood. He exposed the unfruitful works of darkness. I'm not calling you to be an investigative reporter, but our attitude towards evil in the world, both in ourself and outside, should not be one of tolerance, should not be one of acceptance, but one of rebuke, one of reproof, and ultimately showing its destructive outcome. So we need to know how to do that as Christians. We need to know what the unfruitful works of darkness actually are. We need to know the law of God. We need to know our stuff. If I were to ask you this morning, where would you turn in scripture to a passage that outlaws, say, bestiality? Anybody know? Leviticus, yeah, Leviticus 18. Um, what, what about if I were to ask you, where are the six passages that talk about homosexuality in the Bible? Where would you turn? I'm not going to have you answer that. But whatever the sin, whatever God's law says, and whatever the positive conduct that we, we are to adopt, we need to know the scriptures in order to be able to expose the unfruitful works of darkness with our words. If we don't know what we're talking about, it's much harder to do so. Now, this is risky. We could lose a friend. We could lose our job. We could lose our life in certain circumstances. But this is a command that Paul gives us. This is not optional. We have to expose the unfruitful works of darkness, and that involves our words. In fact, I would make the argument this morning that this is one of the principal ways that we are to love our neighbor in Scripture, that this is actually part and parcel of that command as Jesus relates it to us. If you actually go to the verse which involves that statement in the book of Leviticus 19, you hear the following, quote, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So to love our neighbor as ourself means to reason frankly with him, lest we incur sin because of him. It means to speak frankly to speak the truth. Jesus repeats this in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private. That that verb, show him, same verb as in our passage, expose, rebuke, reprove. We are to expose sins by our words and that is how we love our neighbor. Sometimes this is done publicly in the context of the church. You can see 1 Timothy 5 for more on that. It is unloving to let a neighbor keep on in sin and not to expose the unfruitful works of darkness in their life. Now, that doesn't mean be a jerk. We'll see why that should not be the case later on. But we ought to use our words to do so. 
And so we should be exposing sin, not just in others, but also in ourselves. We need to shine the light on our own sin, lest we be hypocrites. I would be remiss if I didn't mention a sin that may have been on some of your minds since I started to preach, a sin that's particularly prevalent in our culture, and we like to think that we're immune to it in the church. We like to think that perhaps even the Reformed are more immune to it. We have the fellowship of the saints, don't we? But we are vulnerable to it just as much, the sin of pornography. If you are a believer and you struggle with this sin, you need to listen up and to hear what I'm about to say. This sin will not leave you until you expose it to the light of God's holiness and to the light of God's grace. The church is not invulnerable to us, men and women alike. You need to expose this unfruitful work of darkness, first and foremost to God, but then also to your brothers and sisters in Christ, depending on whether you're a man or a woman. You need to find a mentor, a trusted friend, and ask for help. There are resources to combat this deadly sin, but it cannot be done without exposure. It cannot be done without bringing it to the light. Now, that doesn't mean you blast it on social media or blast it to the church group chat or whatever. You can find individuals that you'd like to talk to that you can trust, but being secretive and ashamed in your dark room at night is not the solution to fighting this sin. That leads to death. You need to expose it to the light of God's holiness and to his grace. How do we do that? Well, I'll explain more later on, but it's coming to grips with the fact that your sin is more vile and disgusting to God than you could have ever imagined, but that his grace and his love for you is even more astounding than that. The only way out of that dark pit is with the light of the gospel. And so I would encourage you, if you struggle with that sin, as many of us have in the church, lean on your brothers that God has put in your life to expose this sin. So second of all, I said we expose sin with our words. The second way we expose sin is with our lives, with how we live. Paul says this explicitly in verse eight. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Children of the light are beaming. They radiate out. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to let our light shine before the world. So how do we expose darkness? How do we, say, for example, expose the darkness of sexual immorality? Well, First of all, by not taking part in it, okay, step one, but actually by showing the glorious picture that is marital fidelity and marital intimacy, by showing the world and our children the glory of marriage and sexual purity. That is showing the light of God's law, the light of God's holiness. Take covetousness. Well, how do we expose covetousness by shining the light? Well, we don't covet, sure, step one, but also by showing Christian contentment in the lot that God has given us in our lives. There is nothing like a miserable Christian to turn somebody off the Christian faith. That's not saying that we don't go through hard times. We do. But the general attitude of a Christian should not be one of misery. He's been saved from his sins. He's been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. He's going to live forever. That should not leave us totally miserable for the, whole, for the entirety of our lives. What about filthy talk? We expose that with our lives, not just by not telling or laughing at crude jokes, but Paul says in verse four, let there be thanksgiving. We speak differently. We look different. We are different to the world. There is nothing that exposes a counterfeit so much as the genuine. Christians are to expose the unfruitful works of darkness by the contrast between their life and the life of the world. It's like on a dark night when everything is pitch black and there's a star that shines out. It's all the more bright because of the darkness of the sky. That is what a Christian should do. Now, you, you may have been in, in a situation like this before where you're, you're looking at something, whether it's a, a good marriage or a godly man giving advice and wisdom to a younger man, and you look at that and you see, wow, that's good. I, I want that. Not in a covetous way, 
but you, you look at it and you see that is good, that is proper, that is right, that is holy. That's the attitude that our lives should be showing to the world. That we live in such a way that people look at our lives and they say, wow, I want that. That's not what I have. That's not how I've been living. But that is good and that is right and that is true. That's what I want. How does he have that? And now I said we expose with our words, with our lives. And I said we expose with the light of Christ. What does that mean? What is this light that Paul talks about in this passage? He says, for anything that becomes visible is light. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. How do we say what we're supposed to say? How do we live how we're supposed to live? Well, I would argue that the light in this passage is both the light of God's holiness and the light of God's grace. 1 John 1.5 once again says that God is light and that in him there is no darkness at all. The rest of the Bible proclaims that God dwells in unapproachable light. In other words, we cannot even come to him because he is so brilliant. We would be destroyed. We would be undone. There's some days where it's, it's so sunny outdoors and the, the sun is reflecting so much off the pavement that you can barely even open your eyes. We've had a, a few days like this at, at Westminster recently. And you, you get outside and you're just completely taken aback because it's so bright. You, you're dying for a pair of sunglasses or for some shade. All we can do is squint. And that's just an infinitesimally small inkling of what the glory and the holiness of God does. It blasts us away. Just like Moses, we, we can't look at it head on because it would consume us. We would be totally undone, torn to pieces. And so that's in essence what it means to expose the light of God's holiness on the unfruitful works of darkness. We are showing people the holiness, the unmitigated holiness of God expressed in his law, which reflects his holy character. We're telling people of his spotless purity and exposing all of the darkness and, sh- and telling them that at the end of the age, everything that has been done in secret, all the deeds of dark, darkness that have been done in secret will be exposed and that our God is a consuming fire And we tell the world that they will be destroyed if they keep living amidst the darkness. There's nothing like light that shows sin in all of its blackness. So we expose with the light of God's holiness, but that's not all. If that were all we had to say, we would be condemned and the world would be condemned because we know in our hearts that we don't live up. We don't even live up to this command on most days. We don't expose the unfruitful works of darkness, either in ourselves or in the world. So we need to expose not only with the light of God's holiness, but with the light of God's grace. We tell the world that the same God who dwells in unapproachable light has taken on a human nature, has veiled that unapproachable light in humanity and came to save us from the darkness of our sin. How did he do that? By taking the penalty for our unfruitful works of darkness. If God is light and there is no darkness in him at all, how can we who are black as coal in our sins approach such a God? We cannot on our own. But Jesus, the light bringer, the dawn bringer, he takes our filthy black garments on himself. He suffers, bleeds, and dies in our stead, and he clothes us with the garments of light. As Christians, we have been made new already, and one day our bodies will be glorified and made like his to dwell in God's light forever. As opposed to the light of God's holiness, which blinds us, which pushes us away, which repels us, the light of Christ's grace clothes us in perfect righteousness. It's a warm light, and it will make us holy even as he is holy one day. That's what we expose with, the law and the gospel, not just one and not just the other. In fact, you can't tell the gospel properly if you don't have the law. And the purpose of the law is to lead people to repentance in the gospel. We don't go around simply blinding people, but neither do we let them live in a hazy gray their entire life. Jesus didn't go around Galilee blinding people with his holiness, zap, the entire time. There was one time when he unveiled his entire holiness on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it was blinding then. No, he healed the blind and he brought light to those in darkness. You can imagine what it's like being in a dark room where light hasn't been turned on for a while. And all of a sudden, 
floodlights come on, everything is switched on, and you're blinded, you're taken aback, you close your eyes. That's what the light of God's holiness does. That's the light of his law. And what Christ does, what the light of his, what the light of his grace does, is it allows people to become accustomed to that brightness, to allow them to actually see for the very first time. So what happens when we expose? What does our passage say? Paul says that whatever was the unfruitful works of darkness now become visible. Whatever is exposed by the light becomes visible. It's no longer secret. Well, how are people going to react when that happens? Well, there are many reactions, but they generally fall under two categories, hatred or repentance. And it's flavors of all of the above, hatred or repentance. Why hatred? Well, people don't want their sin to be exposed. We don't want our sin to be exposed. The Bible actually makes the claim that the reason we do not come to Jesus is because we love our sin and we hate Jesus. Not because we lack evidence or we had a bad run-in with the church earlier on in our lives, but because we hate God and we love our sin more than we love Jesus. If you're in doubt about this, it's actually said in the very passage right after the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Listen up. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. There's that word again. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So this verse clearly says that the reason people will not come to Christ, not come to the light, is because they don't want their sin exposed. And they hate the light because the light exposes their sin. It shows them that they ought not to be doing what they're doing, that they're not going to get away with it. And so the call for those who don't yet believe, non-Christian, the call is to forsake your sin, to hate it as God hates it, and to come to Christ. To hate your sin and to love God. Because as it is, you love your sin and you hate God. And you will find Christ a willing and loving Savior that will never cast you away. But our passage says that if you continue in darkness, one day, that is all you will know. Pitch black. Forever. Hell. And you will be able to to contemplate alone forever and ever how you knew the truth, how you heard the gospel, how you saw the light, but you loved your sin more than the truth. You loved your deeds of darkness more than the light of Christ. You were offered eternal life freely and you rejected it and preferred your sin over his grace. And you'll be able to think about that forever. That is not a fate I would wish upon you. That is a fate that I wish you would escape from. And the only escape is to run to Christ. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Now, Christian, this response of hatred, we should not be surprised at it. Jesus promises that that's going to be the case in this passage. We should not be surprised at the world's hatred when we expose their sin, even in the most loving and winsome ways. That's exactly what Jesus did. What happened to him? They crucified him. Why? Well, they just want to keep sinning in peace. You keep interrupting their rebellion. No wonder they don't like you. You're a constant reminder to them that there's a day of judgment, that they're not going to get away with it. So you will be hated, but we need to make sure that we're hated for being a herald of grace, not just a herald of the law, not for being jerks. I think Andy's given this illustration before, but there are some who do street evangelism in New York by just reading through the Ten Commandments over and over and over. Nothing else, just the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Make no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. And they just keep going for hours like that, never changing their tune, never giving a word, never giving a drop of grace. Now, you may get hated for that. And yeah, we should read the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are good and right and true. 
But there's no grace in talk like that. There's no offer of the gospel. So we need to be hated if we are going to be hated for the right reason. So it produces hatred and the other potential reaction to exposing sin is what we hope for, what we pray for by the power of the Holy Spirit is repentance. Matthew 18, 15, once again, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Go and expose it between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So when we expose sin in the church or in the world, we have the potential to gain our brother or to gain a new brother. Paul says that anything that becomes visible is light, that God actually works repentance in the heart by exposing sin through shame. And he often uses our brothers and sisters to do so. Bao in his Ephesians exegetical commentary writes, quote, that your gospel proclamation as a Christian is meant to exhibit those deeds of darkness in their true nature as vile and destructive. Otherwise, sinners would be left in their ignorance and their sin would increase and ultimately produce their death. So it's a matter of love to do this and indifference or callousness to exposing the sin in ourselves or in the world betrays a heart that has not been or that has not understood the full weight of God's grace. Finally then, our third point, wake up. Verse 14, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Before getting into what these verses mean, there's a question of where Paul's quoting from in this passage. The short answer is, I'm not sure, and neither are other scholars. But um, it's most likely inspired from Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 reads as follows, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, some think that this verse, um, this verse 14 is part of an early Christian hymn. I'm not particularly partial to that interpretation because there are no, there's no meter in the original language that corresponds to this in any other Greek poetry. So it's probably not a hymn or a song. It's probably Paul just paraphrasing what he knew from Isaiah 60. So with that being said, this is the call that we share with the world. We expose sin, therefore we say the following things. This is what exposing looks like with our words. There are two imperatives that we give here that we call people to, but that they're only able to respond to in the power of the Holy Spirit. We call people to wake up, to awake. We tell the world that they are sleeping at the wheel. And if that they don't wake, they're going to careen off a cliff in short order. That they're driving at 90 miles per hour towards a ditch and they're asleep. And they got their foot on the pedal and they need to break. They need to turn around or they're going to crash. And so the call for you, if you don't yet know Christ, is to wake up now, to wake up today, to rise, sleeper. That your life has been spent in nothing but one long night and morning hasn't come. How do you do that? How do you wake up? Well, you come to see your life as God sees it, as vain, as a war against him, and you reject that. You reject your former ways. And then the call is to arise, to literally stand up, to get up, to wake up, and then to get up from the dead. How do we do that? Well, we come to the source of life. We come to Jesus. We leave behind the old and we come to the new. So you may not like what you're being called this morning. You're being called sleepy and dead. You're asleep at your life, and you're dead spiritually if you're not in Christ. You're a dead man sleepwalking through life. You may not like what the Bible says about you, or you may not care. If you don't care, then you're more asleep and dead than you know, because you're totally insensitive to your dire status. But if you do care... You either care because the Bible is true, but you just don't like being called bad names. If that is you, you need to realize that you're just like a cancer patient who says his doctor is mean when he properly diagnoses him with a disease. The doctor may be blunt, but he is not unkind. You need treatment or you will die. 
But if you hear these words, awake, arise, that you're asleep, that you're dead, and you dislike me saying them because you realize that that is in fact who you are, that you have been asleep at your life, that you are dead in sin and you don't like that, you don't want that to be true of you anymore, then perhaps you're already beginning to wake. And you need not be afraid that you will rise to be crushed by God. What what does our passage say? It says, arise and Christ will shine on you. That the light of his countenance, of his grace, of his love will shine on you. That he will lift your chin up as it were and embrace you. And this is a sure thing. Paul uses the future tense. Christ will shine on you. It's not that he may, not that he might. He will shine upon you. So wake up. Get up. Taste is light. Now to the Christian in the room, you don't need to be awoken from death. That has already happened by the power of the Spirit, but you need to be awoken from your sleepy living, from your dead orthodoxy, and recover your first love because Christ has shown his light on you. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that exposes our sin, that shows us the true depths of the blackness of our heart. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that causes us not to run away from God once we've seen our sin, but to run towards him, crying out for mercy, crying out for grace. Lord, we confess that we have not obeyed Paul's command in this passage as we should, that we have not exposed sin in ourselves and in the world as we ought. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us a renewed love for our neighbor, a renewed love for you that would move us to expose sin with our words and with our lives that our words would be seasoned with salt and our lives would radiate out both the holiness and the light of God's gospel. Lord, I pray for anybody who's here today who does not yet know you, that they would be warned and that through your spirit, you would cause them to be born again to a new life, to new light, to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son in whose name we pray. Amen.